0: Hello and welcome to Pre-Published. I'm Sophia. In my first conversation with Sophie Hannah, we discussed her successful career as a poet and thriller writer and the support she gives to other writers through her Dream Author programme. Many listeners have already been inspired by her words about resilience and self-belief in the face of repeated rejection, which is something most of us are familiar with. If you haven't heard that episode yet, I strongly suggest you give it a listen. In part two, we talk about Sophie's invitation to write for the Agatha Christie estate, picking up the career of Hercule Poirot. She tells me how to use the blurb to create page turnability in your novel, and intriguingly mentions her exclusive gnocchi technique for planning and drafting. As she mentions, you can apply to her directly for this through her Dream Author website, and she will send it to you for free. Sophie is hugely generous with her advice. You can see why she's been my guest twice this season. We recorded this episode in August, 2021. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
1: Sophie, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be
0: back. Um, As you know, we've had some fantastic feedback on the first session that you did where you talked quite a lot about your dream author program and particularly about self-belief. But we didn't have time to talk about everything that I wanted to, so this is the second half um and to start off with um one of my little claims to fame is that my us publishers william morrow publish agatha christie and i'm really excited by that that's as close as i've got to agatha christie but you've got a bit closer haven't you (laughs) you you actually are these days so do tell me about how that came about and how it works
1: Well, actually, I I have to say I don't regard myself as being Hercule Poirot, (laughs) though I do write about him. In fact, if I identify with anybody in my Poirot novels, it's it's Edward Catchpole, who's the narrator um, that I created to narrate all of my Poirot novels. I've written four so far. Um, And I thought since, you know, these were new books for the first time ever, a new author, i.e. me, was going to be writing about Poirot someone who wasn't Agatha Christie was going to be writing about Poirot. And I thought, I really need to invent a, a new sidekick for Poirot so that the books can actually mirror the real situation. So the real situation is a completely new voice and person is writing about, wor- writing about and working with Poirot. Um, and so I thought that the best way to tackle that would be to have a narrator in the books who is himself a new person working with and writing about Poirot. So, if anything, I identify more with Catchpool, the narrator of uh, of all my Poirot novels. So, the first one, the Monogram Murders, I was asked by Agatha Christie's family, which was obviously a huge surprise and, you know, a, a great honour. That I'm, I'm, I still feel it's a, a great honour and a, a really serious responsibility to take on. Uh, Hercule Poirot Agatha's you know most beloved character it's the last thing I would ever have expected that I would be asked to do Um, and what's hilarious is often at my events now people ask me questions like how did you persuade the Christie family to let you write Poirot and I always think it's so funny that anyone would think that I would even for a second consider Doing that, that was not how it came about. I was not sitting at home thinking, do you know what? I should really write a Poirot novel. I must persuade the Christie family. Like nothing could have been further from my mind. I was an avid and devoted Agatha Christie fan, and I'd read and reread all the Poirot novels and indeed all of Agatha's other novels many, many times. And I was just a massive fan and quite happy to remain a massive fan. And everyone. In the literary world knew that I was a big Christie fan to the point where I had started in the in the sort of two or three years before 2013 I had started to be invited to appear on panels in the role of the person defending Agatha Christie so I would often at literary festivals where the topic was Agatha Christie still, still relevant or a bit passé these days you know or you know good writer or just you know, commercial nonsense. And I would always appear on the panel and, and say, and I've been doing it ever since, um, that I think Agatha Christie is a truly great writer. I don't agree with the people who say that her prose is not that good and that it's all about the plot and the story and she's not that good a writer. She's mm-hmm. a good But I've never agreed with that. Uh, and my test is, do I still get massive enjoyment from her books, even knowing every detail of the plot? And the answer yeah. is easy? because I find her prose to be crisp and economical and elegant and sparkling and just, just amazing. I, I think she's a brilliant writer in the same way that I think Dickens or Virginia Woolf or, you know, Emily Bronte were brilliant writers. And I think it's hilarious that so many people say, oh, well, obviously she's not a good writer. And I'm like, uh, when billions of people all over the world want to read and reread your books to the extent that they do with Agatha's, you're on shaky ground, if you want to argue that that is someone who isn't a brilliant writer. Because, you know, even apart from anything else, the ability to write stories that people massively want to read and carry on reading if that's not considered to be part of what what we think of as literary merit, then it's about time it became so, you know, Um, but even even when you look at her prose on a line-by-line, paragraph-by-paragraph basis, there's great stuff in there, and I say that as someone who reads almost nothing but crime fiction, I read self-help as well, but usually if I'm reading a novel it's crime fiction, and even some of the crime novels I've enjoyed most and would have high up in my rankings system, once I know the outcome of the mystery, I'm never going to want to read that book again. That's not anything against the book. I'll still regard it as an absolutely brilliant thriller. But once I know the answer to the puzzle, whatever it is, then that's it. That, my experience of that book was great, but it's finished. Whereas yeah. with Agatha Christie... I mean, I could sit down and read Murder on the Orient Express tomorrow, knowing every... I mean, I know, I even know all the meticulous, you know, where the pipe cleaner was and what was written on the burnt bit of paper. I know it off by heart, but I would still thoroughly enjoy reading it. And to me, that is a sign of brilliant writing. Uh, So I was very happy to just be an Agatha fan and um, evangelist. Um, and it would never in a million years have occurred to me to approach her family and say, Let me write a Poirot novel. I honestly would have thought that would be similar to kind of ringing Buckingham Palace. Well, this is very apt for you to make this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is the analogy I always use. I would have felt that having, thinking of it myself and thinking, I know I should write a Poirot novel and I'll ring the Christie's and ask if I can would have felt similar to ringing Buckingham Palace and saying, have you considered booking me to be the next Queen of England? I mean, I know Charles is technically the heir to the throne, but I think I'd do a great job. (laughs) It would no no more have occurred to me to do one than the other. So if it was just down to me, I would never have written any novels. Uh, And at that point, the Christie family had never heard of me. So if I was just down to them... I would also never have written any novels. So the only reason it happened was because of a weird coincidence of timing. My literary agent was in a meeting at HarperCollins. It was a meeting that had nothing to do with Agatha Christie and nothing to do with me. It was something else. He was working on maybe one of his other clients' books. Um, And he was in a room for this meeting. This was in the days when, you know, meetings were generally in rooms with actual people.
0: I remember. Um, Yeah
1: and uh, so he was in this meeting in this room and there happened to be a shelf in the room full of Agatha Christie's books because it was Harper Collins's office and they publish Agatha Christie and he was looking at these books idly as his mind drifted from what he was supposed to be thinking about in the meeting and he remembered that I was a massive fan and he thought to himself huh I wonder why Collins haven't had the idea to do some kind of Christie continuation novel. And so he just suggested it in the middle of this meeting. He said, hey, you guys publish Agatha Christie. I've got this author, Sophie Hannah, who's a massive Christie fan. Why don't you ask her to write a new Christie brand novel? Um, and Harper Collins said immediately, no, 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 no. The family would never allow something like that to happen. We have periodically suggested that there might be a new book of some kind. They're very much against it. Never going to happen. And so my agent rang me that evening and told me that he had made this suggestion and that they'd said no. And I was actually a little bit annoyed with him because firstly, I thought one shouldn't really be making these suggestions without checking with the author. (laughs) Um, But actually, he's such a maverick in a brilliant way. I've always like from the minute I met him, I've been with him for well over 10 years and he's an amazing and brilliant agent but he is a maverick. He just does things other an ancients want. He just thinks of things and he's just like a bit quirky. He sounds brilliant. H- who is he? He is Peter Strauss from Rogers, Coleridge and White. Okay, right, listeners. <laughs> That's what you want. But But part of the reason I wouldn't be without him is because he is unlike anybody else I've ever met and he does weird things. So it wasn't huge surprise to, to me to hear that he'd made this suggestion without even checking with me whether i might want to do it he just sort of said it out of the blue anyway so he says you know i made this suggestion i said okay uh and what was the response thinking you know what a crazy suggestion he's bonkers why did he do that he says oh well the response was they said absolutely not no way it's a definite no the family would never want anything like this to happen so I was like okay well that's fine I wish you'd checked with me beforehand because I could have told you as an Agatha fan you know he he's not particularly an Agatha fan but I was so I knew that the family were rightly incredibly protective over Agatha's legacy and I knew or I thought I knew the answer would be no um so anyway I, I thought fine Nothing is lost. You know, I wasn't writing prior novels beforehand and now I'm still not writing prior novels and that's absolutely fine. But I felt a little bit peeved, I guess, because I felt as though I'd been rejected for something. Like Basically, my, <laughs> agent, my agent had created an opportunity for me to be rejected for something that I would never have thought to apply for. So, you know, it's a bit like getting a phone call saying, you know, Brad Pitt does not want to marry you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, no, thanks. You know, I, I, <laughs> but now I feel fine. a bit worse. <laughs> yeah, I was fine not marrying Brad Pitt before, but now that I know that he actively doesn't <laughs> want to... <laughs> So, anyway, it was all hilarious. And I just thought this is a hilarious story. And then the next day, my agent rang up and said, well, anyway, the Christie family wants to meet you. And I was like, what? And I said to him, isn't this a little strange? I thought this wasn't happening. And he said, I know, it's weird, isn't it? Well, I guess I guess we just go along to the meeting and see what they have to say. So he hadn't asked why they wanted to meet here. So it was all very odd. Anyway, we went to the meeting and it turned out that although it, although they hadn't finally decided and they were still very much in two minds, they were, in fact unknown to my agent when he made that suggestion Mm. to HarperCollins he didn't know that the Christie family were actually at that moment considering commissioning a new book and the way it all came together was that the very next day the day after my agent had made the suggestion to HarperCollins and been told no the very next day an editor at HarperCollins had a meeting with the Christie family just in the normal run of things to discuss the ongoing you know Christie Backlist publication and at that meeting Matthew Pritchard, who is Agatha Christie's grandson and who at the time was the chairman of Agatha Christie limited. At that meeting Matthew said to Harper Collins, this is going to really surprise you after everything we've always said. Um, but we are starting to think that now might be the perfect time for some kind of continuation novel, at which point the HarperCollins team said, ah, this is a weird coincidence, (laughs) we had an agent, et cetera, et cetera. So a meeting was arranged and it all went from there.
0: Do you know, that is so interesting. Um, I was talking to Jenny Colgan for the podcast recently about her timing with... um, with Helen Fielding with the Bridget Jones books and with Bake Off and how that helped and and it is it is a bit of a theme with published authors I I find on the podcast that that luck and timing comes into it tremendously but combined with huge amounts of practice expertise hard work just having a whole toolkit ready to go when the luck kicks in and and that story just really seems to kind of fit that. It wouldn't it wouldn't have worked for many people. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you'd said to me, I'm I'm a, I'm a great fan, I'm a more of a fan of Dorothy Sayers than Agatha Christie actually, but you know, if, if they'd said to me, hey Sophia Bennett, we'd like you to do it, I wouldn't have been able to.
1: I don't know enough to, but you do. Well I did think at the time where when it started to look because that meeting with the Christie family went brilliantly well, we discussed Christie's work in great detail and what I would do if they were to ask me to write a book. And it went amazingly well and then there was more mulling and thinking so it wasn't a hastily made decision there were many many months between that first meeting and when we all decided to go ahead although obviously i knew that i was keen and up for it from the start because it was just such a great honor to be asked Mm. Um, but i remember distinctly thinking you know there are not many writers that and there are possibly there are possibly no other writers apart from Agatha Christie for whom I would feel able to do this. So uh, when I thought of others of my favorite writers, like for example, Iris Murdoch, um, Tana French, I mean, you know, obviously she's young and alive and (laughs) no one would ask me to write her books, but when I thought of all the other writers that I really loved and knew as well as I knew Agatha Christie, I kind of would have felt, I don't know where to begin if I were to try and write a continuation novel for them. If I were to try and write a continuation Iris Murdoch novel, I I would sort of feel, you know, I don't know whether I could do that. And, And I started to think, actually, Agatha Christie is probably the only writer about whom I would feel comfortable writing continuation novels. And I didn't really know why that was. I mean, I guess the obvious answer might be, She'd been my favourite writer since I was twelve, and I'd yeah. read her books four or five times each. So it could just be that, but but you know, Ruth Rendell was another is another of my very very favourite crime writers. She's been one of my favourite crime writers since I was eighteen, you know, which was a long time ago. But I wouldn't feel if Ruth Rendell's estate said, you know, write a continuation Wexford novel. I think I would immediately say, I, I just don't feel as if I would be able to so with Agatha and in particular with Poirot it was kind of weird that I thought actually I do think I might be able to do that and it could just be that you know Agatha was such a profound influence on my writing even when I was writing um, only and exclusively psychological thrillers that were very contemporary and that Mm. on the surface were very different to Christie novels but the sort of storytelling and narrative and structural priorities in all my books even long before i started writing prior novels were ones that i had kind of taken on from agatha like a super puzzling mysterious premise and an unpredictable ending and you know just all the things that i really valued in crime fiction I'd, i'd acquired those values via reading and obsessing about Agatha's books. So I think that's why she was literally the only person that I could have envisaged writing continuation novels for.
0: And so you published Monogram Murders and that was the first one. Um, And then there's, is The Killings at Kingfisher Hill, isn't it? I'm I'm picturing it on my my bookshelf.
1: Oh yeah, so The Killings at Kingfisher Hill is the latest one, that's number four. Okay. Monogram murders was the first one. And then the second one was called closed casket. And the third one is called the mystery of three quarters.
0: And is there a plan that you just keep doing them indefinitely for the estate?
1: Um, We never really plan ahead that far. Deliberately, I think, you Mm. know, we just take it from book to book. Uh, So I have a contract to write one more. Uh, At any given point so far, I've had a contract to write the next one. So yeah. I, do, I can confirm that there will be a Poirot number five. Uh, and it's quite exciting, actually, because I'm just starting to assemble the ideas and the characters and the plot lines. Oh, for lovely. That. I love that bit. I love yeah. that stage. Yeah. And I, I went, um, it was my 50th birthday at the end of June. And I went with my family to stay in a posh hotel in London. And uh, our activity for this uh, this weekend away in london was basically well apart from swimming at our hotel which is always a priority but the other priority was shopping uh, and i went to my favorite shop in london which is liberty and i went to the stationery section in search of like a beautiful notebook, and I found the most amazing notebook, which I haven't unwrapped yet. It's still in its wrapping paper. I'm actually looking at it now. It's I'm looking still at out, you looking but. at it <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> that gonna be, that's going to be the notebook where I make the note. Oh. number five.
0: Very exciting. I think um, of all my, my the pictures I put on Twitter, which is not very many. Over the years, the one that's got the most interest was that was the picture of my the spines of my notebooks on the shelf, and they're you know they're just notebooks, but um, but yes, there is something to any writer. I think there's something very thrilling to picture the notebook in which it happened.
1: Yeah, and I also find it fascinating that one writer's ideal notebook is another writer's terrible notebook. Yep. I mean I sometimes see people going, "Look at my amazing new notebook," and I'm like, I would not get excited about this notebook. <laughs> And my beautiful notebook that I bought in Liberty, one of the party, I won't say who, but someone who was with me that weekend was standing next to me going, it's hideous. I I can't (laughs) wear it. Do do not buy that notebook. And I was like, but this is my ideal notebook. So I do think it's interesting how, you know, everyone's taste varies. But yeah, I think you're right. Writers like to know about each other's stationery. They also like to know about each other's working day routines scheduling time management productivity routines um you know all of that stuff uh, we all want to know what rooms other people write in we all like seeing pictures of other writers writing rooms so i think that is all really fascinating i always want to know all that stuff
0: Yeah, I know. I'm saying somebody was saying yesterday she'd had a four Pomodoro afternoon. So I assume that she means four (laughs) sections of 25 minutes. And I thought, oh, I must do that. (laughs) That would definitely work for me, too. Um,
1: Yeah, always. I used to be so so, um, if I heard about a method like Pomodoro or save the cat. I, I still don't know what these things mean, by the way, or Scrivener or any of these things. I used to be like, I've got to find out what that is and do it. Um, And I'm just not anymore because any system I've ever tried that I didn't create myself has just never, never worked for me. So I now I now create and use my own systems. And usually they've been built up by trial and error.
0: On the subject of days, um, I wasn't going to ask you this, but like you, I'm completely fascinated. I know everybody is. Are you are you one of these morning writers who gets a huge amount done before the working day starts? Because I'm not, I have to say, I love to be and I try to be, but I'm a kind of late afternoon, nighttime writer, ideally.
1: Yeah, well, to be honest, I am still a work in progress. I I can't honestly say that at this moment, I've worked out comprehensively what my best working method is. Um, I used to be very much an afternoon and late evening writer. So I would do a chunk of writing between like two and six, mm. and another couple of hours between like eleven and one. That That's what works
0: for work. me if, if I can.
1: Yeah, but then the problem is, I started to get too tired. Like these days at eleven p.m., I just haven't got a head for doing anything useful. Yeah, because I always, if I'm if I'm home, I always have dinner with my family and then we watch TV and I relax and 11 is roundabout when everyone else goes to bed. Mm. And the last thing I want to do these days is go and do more work. So um, I've become more of a morning and after. So like I'll do a stint in the morning and a stint in the afternoon. But to be honest, if I'm doing a first draft, it never works out that I write in a regular way or at the same time every day. And the process of writing a first draft for me up until now has always felt like desperate scrabble to get the words down so that I can then tidy them up and edit them later Uh, and the reason I say I'm a work in progress is that I very much want to be I mean you mentioned Jenny Colgan she's my sort of shining example of a writer with a great writing routine yeah and I don't know whether she's changed her routine since but I remember having having lunch with her once and she said I told her about my routine of like making up in the middle of the night for what I haven't done in the day and she looked kind of horrified by this and she said but that means you never get to think I've done my work for the day now I can relax you never get to think that you're always thinking gotta do more before I go to bed and like finishing at 1am and I was like yeah that's that's bad isn't it and she was like (laughs) (laughs) I said well what do you do and she said well I, and, and I mean I may not get the exact details right but I think either four or five days a week no four days a week this used to be her writing routine four yeah. days a week she would go to a local cafe at 11 a.m and she would write from 11 a.m till 1 30 p.m so two and a half hours four days a week and in each two and a half hour slot always in the same place in this cafe she would write 2,500 words so she would know <gasps> by the end of the week she would have ten thousand words written and i just thought that's amazing like that is the dream writing and yet somehow i haven't managed to adopt (laughs) it yet and i don't kind of know why because in theory i could try that i've never even tried to do it so i don't really I'm, i'm still very much investigating what kind of writer i want to be i think the reason i haven't done Jenny's very excellent schedule is because there's something in me that really resists any kind of regularity or routine I mean I don't know whether you've heard of um, this book by a woman called Gretchen Rubin called Mm. The Four Tendencies no it's an American it's an American self-help book It was very popular a few years ago and it basically it, it asks you all these questions and it divides everybody up into four categories um, and you're either an upholder, an obliger, a questioner or a rebel. If anyone wants to find out which they are without buying the book, um, <laughs> you can, there's a quiz online. Um, if you just Google Gretchen Rubin or you don't, you don't even need to Google her name, just Google four tendencies quiz. And that'll take you straight to a link um, to a list of questions and you can answer the questions and find out which you are. But anyway, I am a rebel. Okay. <laughs> every, time I, every time I do the test, I come out as a rebel. So what that means is, anything that I've decided I should comply with in terms of expectations, either what other people expect me to do, or what I expect myself to do, the minute there is an expectation, I'm going to want to rebel against it. So I think that if I said to myself, right, I'm going to do two two and a half thousand words a day, four days a week, between eleven and one thirty my brain would immediately go no I'm not and you can't <laughs> yeah. make it even though it would have been my own choice to do it so yeah so it's hard being a rebel because you can often sort of scupper yourself but um what I'm trying to do for the next book I mean when I finished the last book which is coming out in January end of January next year my next um contemporary psychological thriller is coming out it's called the couple at the table and it's basically seven couples one luxury resort a bride is murdered on her honeymoon and the only person or people who could have done it is somebody else at this couples-only resort. And yet everybody present has been eliminated. Uh, Nobody could possibly have done it and yet somebody must have done it. So so that's the premise for the couple at the table. Um, And I loved the idea, had the idea a good while ago, but put off starting writing it until the deadline got scarily close and this is what I always do because I quite like being in that state of thinking about my exciting new book but not actually having to do the work on it
0: yeah it's great isn't and it so <laughs> the I
1: notebook stage yay Yeah, like, yeah I'm not, I am not going to have to write a book today it's amazing I know I'm going to be writing a book and I know I've just written a book and that's amazing I'll enjoy past and future books but I don't have to sit down and do any writing today um so, yeah, so I always leave it until the deadline is uncomfortably looming overhead and, and and you know, sliding into view. Then I start writing and then I, I always think, OK, got to get this done, got to be efficient. And anyway, the result is that I end up by the time I hand in a book, I feel physically completely drained and mentally completely drained. And there is no good reason for me to be like that anymore like now that I've identified what method of working makes me feel really drained I can take steps to avoid it so at this moment at the moment of recording this podcast I have a plan in place to write my next book which is Poirot number 5 in a more sensible way and that sensible way is going to consist of starting long before I need to start and setting myself a deliberately low word count target every day so in other words instead of I mean it has to be handed in end of July next year okay just what what the old me the hopefully old me will would have done is start in like oh beginning of May yeah I would have I would have a very solid plan before then, but I would start writing beginning of May and write the first draft May, June, July. But actually, that's not enough time. That's nowhere near enough time for me to write a book comfortably and without kind of deadline stress. So instead, I might start writing it like in September, in other words, next month. And if I started writing it next month, I could write 500 words a day, which is, dead easy for me like 500 words I've almost written that by the time I've just started you know you start write a bit 500 words appear very quickly so if I started writing at 500 words a day in September then there'd never be a single day when I had to frantically produce loads of words while worrying about the deadline and I would quite like to experience that way of writing at least once in my (laughs) life and hopefully if it went well I'd, I'd adopt it as my regular pattern
0: Oh, good luck. I hope it works. I hope your rebel brain isn't (laughs) kind of laughing now going, yeah, she thinks.
1: (laughs) Well, no, because um, what you have to do, I mean, in Gretchen Rubin's book, she tells you how to overcome the unfortunate aspect of your tendency. And she says, if you're a rebel, you have to frame whatever you plan and want to do. You have to frame it so that by doing it, you'll be rebelling against something else. Yeah, Okay. So so, yeah, uh, obviously, with all my experience now of coaching and being coached, uh, I know how to be onto my brain and, and look at where it's trying to sabotage me yeah. in a way that I, I wasn't previously able to see. So I have high hopes that my my new method will work. I mean, do you have frantic deadline stress with your books?
0: I, I like I like a deadline. Um, I really do and uh lots of what you've said sounds extremely familiar both sides of it both both the kind of you know desperately working to the last minute and um and also planning a nice low word count thing um yeah. but what for me what what tends to happen is is either the the voice really comes or it doesn't and and if I'm struggling and by voice I don't just mean you know sort of how the the narrator comes across but just everything about it just the the kind of forward propulsion of the way I write the kind of sentences I'm going to be using the level of humor the point of view all of that Um, and if that's really humming then I can write up to sort of 4,000 words and it's all lovely Um, and if it's not then I have every procrastination technique in the book for kind of struggling to get it done. Yeah. Um, so I always try. I love this idea of, you know, I, I do, let's say, set a, a reasonable level of 2000 words and get that done and feel great about yourself. But it is it is rare <laughs> that comes. Um, I yeah, with the first draft, I, I like I like the editing process because that then I have a thing with a beginning and a middle and an end. And I'm working on chunks and I can see how long they are. and And I find that. <laughs> That's, that's a much more um, enjoyable thing. But yes, creating, what's annoying, I mean, I think what we all have is I have a perfect novel in my head, it's where I am right now, you know, I have a, have a perfect novel about the queen solving crimes at Sandringham and I have all the themes in my head and I have what I want to say. And, and, and the gap between that and what's coming out on the page is so big that,
1: <laughs> um, that it is an effort of will to kind of keep yeah. going through it. Um, yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, it would be so easy for any of us to start writing a good distance of time before our deadline and write our words every day if we didn't have the angst associated with it but the minute we open our work in progress usually some thoughts I mean this is you know going back to my dream author work where you know as you know because we've discussed it in detail I believe that our thoughts and our beliefs create all of our results in our life and the minute we open anything we've written or are writing the thoughts start coming up like this is nowhere near as good as I hoped it would be. So that, that makes us want to run away. And then we end up realizing that the deadline is two weeks away and we've still got to write half the book. So Um, yeah,
0: late nights. Um, I, I, Ideally, I'd, I'd like to go away, which of course wasn't possible. I mean, luckily, the, the um, book, book two went fine because it was written in lockdown and I, I had no choice. I couldn't go away if I wanted to. Um, yeah. But but that can often help me. And, and my husband is saying, you're getting to that stage now is book an Airbnb. Now, that that's a thing um, for a few days. And it's, it's never sort of longer than about five days away from from um, the youngest who's at home and things. Um, and just be away. And the first two days are spent panicking. And sitting down, and my brain just rebelling, 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 and then by the third day, it starts to calm down and behave. And then, yeah. and then I have three days of real productivity, and that carries me through when I get back. So yeah. that that's yeah. that's a good method for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, being in a different place is very, very useful. So I actually, um, for the end of the couple at the table, when I basically I knew I had to produce about seven thousand words a day. Absolutely. For a continuous stretch of three weeks. That is heavy. There was no alternative to that Um, so I just decided I was going to enjoy it and make it fun. So I've got a a friend who very kindly lent me because I also for various reasons I couldn't go to my holiday house in the Cotswolds because there were things I needed to be in Cambridge for. Uh, But I've got a friend in Cambridge who has a sort of guest apartment attached to her house. So I borrowed that. Mm. She very kindly lent it to me. Um, And I just went there every day and wrote my 7000 words there and then went home when I'd written them. And I actually I did manage to do it without working late at night on any night. I was very pleased about that because it used to be the case that when I was handing in a book, I'd be up till four or five a.m the few the few days before i handed it in i didn't do that at all with this book because i just recognized that you know i'm 50 i need to go to sleep interesting before, before midnight <laughs> you know uh, so i managed to i i guess that's a good sign that i'm getting slightly more sensible i'm actually doing my my big deadline rushes of words, at least during daylight hours, which is an improvement. (laughs) It's a step in the right direction. I always used to say I'm not a morning person at all. I used to be like anything I did in the morning was not, didn't quite work as well as in the afternoon, but I've become much more of a morning person. So if I want to do serious brain work, Mm. morning is actually a really good time for me. So that's when I start my writing my Poirot, I think I'm going to have my, a regular writing slot, aiming to produce 500 words a day, and I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. And this will be so different from how I've always been that it will be a very interesting experiment.
0: Um, I did. I did want to talk to you a little bit um, about plotting and planning and page turning. Now that I've got you here, because um, when I am in my um, my kind of scared moments of thinking, I have a lot of words to write. I'm not yeah. happy with what's going on the page. How am I going to do this? One of the, the things that's holding me back is
1: yeah.
0: what, what is the page turnability here? Um, am I thinking about character or setting or, or dialogue? I, I, normally, I, that's what I love. And, and am I losing track of why the reader wants to get to the next chapter? And you're brilliant at that, obviously, absolutely brilliant at it. So what are you thinking? When you're, when you're writing to, to get that page turnability into your work?
1: Uh, well, this actually ties into something that I, that I teach in Dream Author. So um, I tell all my dream authors that um, I write in a particular way. I always start with what I call the story promise. So uh, I, I encourage my dream authors to, to try out this method that I use and then they'll see if it works for them. But it works brilliantly for me. I start before I do anything else on a book, apart from like, have a, you know, I have ideas in my head. I jot down ideas in my nice posh notebook, you know, as, as I've said already. But when it comes to like actually going to the keyboard and starting to actually do something, the very first thing I do is write a blurb. So I imagine, I sort of fast forward in my mind To the moment when i've finished writing this book that i'm just starting to think about i imagine it finished i imagine my editor saying right what blurb should we put on the back cover for for when it's published and i try and write that blurb first and it usually feels like an impossible task because i think well i haven't written it yet so many things might change it all feels very kind of amorphous at the moment But that's why it's such a brilliant exercise, because if you fast forward to when it's finished, you kind of imagine the ideal version of it or even ideal version of what it might be or what you hope it will be. If you sit down and try to write a blurb for that book that you want it to be. Initially, you won't be able to write a good one. So initially, you'll write a really lackluster, uninspiring one that isn't really accurate, Then you'll look at that and go, no, 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 that's no good. How can I improve it? And you think, well, it's not really that so much as this. And you tinker around with it. And eventually you end up with a blurb that you're happy with. And it feels a bit weird because it's a blurb for a book that doesn't exist yet. But if you stick to that discipline and actually commit to writing a blurb for your book before you start planning it or writing it, that's really effective because what a blurb does is make a story promise to the reader. Every blurb on the of every book is making a story promise to the reader. So my books, because they're all very, very mystery-driven, I mean, obviously they're crime fiction, but within the crime fiction genre, there are some stories which are more and some stories which are less mystery-puzzle-driven. And mine are always massively... (laughs) They're driven by mystery puzzle Um, thoughts more than any other kind so my blurbs all promise a version of here's a big baffling mystery I promise that you are going to be intrigued and gripped by this mystery and desperately desperately wanting to find out the solution and I further promise that by the time you get to the end of the book you will have a satisfactory solution to the mystery and that that tantalizing frustrating Desperation to know will be satisfied with the solution to the puzzle. So, all my book blurbs, in different ways, are promising that. Yeah. So it it almost doesn't matter what they say, whether it's like seven couples, one luxurious adults only. No, sorry, couples only holiday resort. I haven't actually done the blurb yet for the couple at the table. (laughs) Haven't finalized it, but you know, seven couples, one luxury couples only resort. One woman dies on her honeymoon. One of the other guests must have killed her, but none of them could have because the evidence proves they were all not in the relevant place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my last thriller before that, Haven't They Grown? This woman sees two children who apparently haven't grown at all, haven't aged a day in 12 years. They still look three and five years old when they should be you know, 17, 15, whatever what could possibly be going on so all all my book blurbs say here is a very puzzling and often apparently impossible situation here it is it's happening and yet it's massively baffling and it looks as though it might even be impossible what on earth could the solution to this weird puzzle be and the promise is then you will find out the solution and it will be good and you won't be disappointed by it so if you approach writing a book in the way i do you've honed your story promise right at the start because by writing that blurb and perfecting it and polishing it you're reminding yourself of what the book needs to deliver now for me because what my books need to deliver according to my own you know story promise slash mission statement what my books need to deliver is a mystery and then a solution so in a way that then makes it easier for me to always keep that in mind as I'm writing so then my next stage is to do a plan I I teach in dream author a very specific planning method called the gnocchi method yeah Um, I, I haven't really got time to go into it in great detail but it's it's in my opinion the best possible way of planning a book in detail before writing it If anyone would like more details of the gnocchi method, they can just email me sophie at sophiehanna.com and just put gnocchi, G-N-O-C-C-H-I in the subject line and I will send you the dream author materials about how to do the gnocchi method. I just send them out to anyone who wants them. Um, So just email me sophie at sophiehanna.com and I will send them to you if you would like them. Uh, You just need to find to put gnocchi in the subject line but basically so I have my mission statement in the form of a blurb that is the story promise that I need to deliver on then I do my gnocchi plan and as I'm planning what's going to happen in each chapter I have at the front of my mind the awareness that everything needs to be intriguing the reader more up to a certain point drawing them in even more giving them a little detail you know, you're trying to solve the mystery. Oh, and you find this, you find out this crucial bit of information, but what does that mean? Because that seems to contradict with that. So I'm just always aware that I have to be hooking them in Mm. and increasing their desire to get to the solution of this mystery even more until the point when I'm starting to, you know, I've sort of reached the top of the mystery creating hill. And then from that point on, we have to be Hurtling towards the solution. But because I'm always keeping in mind that mystery and solution structure and the journey from first encountering the mystery to the mystery deepens, it deepens more, then something happens which doesn't seem to fit at all and takes us in a new direction, then a new discovery, then we're hurtling towards the solution which everyone's desperate to know. So it it creates a real, um, a very clear, um set of criteria against which I can check is this chapter delivering on that front Mm -hmm. and because as a reader right my 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 main my main obsession really is with that page turn equality I I don't read books really that aren't page turners because if I feel as if I could either read on or I could stop I'm always going to stop So the books I read to the end of, I mean, I'm reading a book right now, which is a mystery um, called Apples Never Fall by Leanne Moriarty. So it's a kind of domestic suspense. I don't know whether it's crime yet. You can't tell if it's crime yet because we don't know whether a crime has happened, but uh, a woman, a, a mother of four, a married mother of four has disappeared and the police are looking for her and her family don't know where she is. So that's definitely a mystery and it's a real page turner, and every chapter I read, every page I read, I'm more drawn in, and more keen to solve the mystery, and so if, if you know what your book is trying to do, then you can look at every chapter, at every page, and think, how is this advancing the motivation that I want my reader to have, Um, so if you're, if you're writing a love story, let's say, about a woman who's Had her heart terribly broken and all she wants is to find Mr. Wright. then I mean I I don't write those kinds of books so I'm not an expert but you know presumably if that if that you know writing a great love story was your priority you would be able to tell if on every page the writing is likely to make the reader more invested in the heroine situation, more empathetic with her, more sort of gripped by the various romantic goings on. And, and you just, you know, if you, if you approach writing with your story promise in mind, then it's easy to sort of think, okay, is it delivering on the story promise? Um, because also blurbs don't only make story promises, they make promises about what kind of reading experience the writer will, uh, the, sorry, the reader will have. So the blurbs of many thrillers are not only promising what kind of story it will be, but also promising, very subtly, all sort of between the lines rather than overtly, promising what kind of reading experience the reader will have. Yeah. So, so most books, as well as ma- as well as the blurbs making a story promise, they're also making a reading experience promise. So, thrillers, for example, the blurb sometimes says an edge of your seat, gripping, unput downable thriller and that's saying to the reader you will be held in suspense you will be gripped you won't be able to stop reading until you know the answer and if you were writing a very arty literary highbrow book well you might be aiming to fascinate the reader by your use of beautiful language or you know so so really a blurb can do a lot of mission statement setting work by not only telling the reader, but also before the book's even written, reminding the writer of what priorities they need to keep in mind. And then you just constantly remind yourself of that as you're writing each section, because what often happens if we don't take care to remind ourselves of, of those sort of priorities, what can often happen is we get caught up in the you know day to oh, day, I've got to write a bit of my book and we can lose sight of what we're meant to be delivering. And if anxiety sets in, we can think, I've got to make sure the readers know everything and haven't forgotten anything. So then you can have chapter after chapter of, remember, this is what we've learned so far where nothing is advanced and then the pace can flag a bit. So um, it's, I think it's just a question of like bearing it in mind and checking at every stage that it's delivering. And also not panicking if you realize that a couple of chapters of your book haven't been suspenseful or pacy it's not the end of the world once you've identified something wrong you can fix it so i always say to my dream authors if they get very disheartened when they realize there's a problem with their book i always say look realizing you know when you have that gut-lurching feeling of oh, there's something terribly wrong with my my novel in progress it never feels good but it is actually exactly what we need to give us that shock so that we go oh okay I really need to change this because it's not working like this and once we get over the horror of realizing that our writing wasn't as good as we hoped then we're able to change and fix whatever needs changing and fixing
0: brilliant thank you (laughs) that helps a lot Um... I will, I will go forth today with, with that in mind, see if it, if it helps me go faster. Um, yeah. as, as ever, Sophie, it's been absolutely brilliant. I think we've reached the end of our time um, and uh, you've been so helpful. That's wonderful. I'm sure you'll have lots of people asking you
1: for the, um, the, gnocchi, for the gnocchi. Yes, brilliant. <laughs> well, I'm happy to send it to anyone who wants it. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast again. It's been
0: really good to chat to you. Um, brilliant. Uh, so grateful. Um, do come back again another time. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about, but that's it for now. And, um, yeah, as always, super grateful. Thank you. You're welcome. I'd like to thank Christopher Pett for editing and producing this episode of Prepublished. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. You can also join us on Twitter at PrePubPodcast and find me at my children's books website, which is sophiabennett.com or my adult crime series website, which is sjbennettbooks.com.